be seated. Would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, sometimes we look at attitudes and events in the world around us and we grieve. We are sometimes angered or confused. We grieve even more deeply when you reveal in our own hearts places where we differ from your revealed word, from your intentions, and from the mind of Christ. Lord, on this subject of race that we're looking at this morning and all other subjects we explore, teach us your perspective and give us your heart. Let us follow Jesus always. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Well, I'm sure as we got started this morning and you saw the word race in the title of my sermon, maybe you thought, I don't need one more person telling me about race and racism. I've heard enough. On the other hand, maybe you look at me and say, that is the pastiest white guy I have ever seen. What on earth does he have to say about race? You'd be right on both counts. We've heard a lot about racial divide in the country recently. I, I've been listening to uh, journalist Malcolm Gladwell and his program, and he said, you know, the word racist has lost its power because it's been used way too much in the last year, and therefore it doesn't carry the same impact it used to because it's applied in the wrong situations many times. And it is true that I don't have anything at all in first-hand knowledge of what it's like to live as a person of color in this country. But you know, nonetheless, I think we need to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in such things. And so on this topic, as with others, we're going to try and listen and obey to hear what the Spirit is saying to us and to follow after Him. It seems to me that in the last couple of years, the easiest way to damage somebody's credibility is to call them a racist. It also seems to me that the easiest way to block out another person's perspective on matters of race is to say, I'm not a racist, and then ignore the issue that's being raised. That's become our defensive wall. But what does it mean to be a racist? I, I heard a, a, an interview the other day with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote the book, Be uh, Anti-Racist, and he asked the same question in the interview. Here's what he said. He said, when, when is something racist? He said, I only think something is racist if an idea is connoting that another racial group is inferior or superior. I only think a policy is racist when it's leaning to or growing a racial inequity or injustice. Now, you may not have realized this, but we have been having a crisis based in race here in America. Over the last couple of years, it's really come to a head. It's not a new thing. It's been around a long, long time. And we've seen people shouting and people protesting. Um, we see that, and often we turn away from it. Uh, and Maybe when we turn away from it, you know, because it's really hard to watch some of that stuff. And we turn away, uh, and we're maybe a little angry, but, but maybe when we turn away, we are missing some of what is being said. And some of what is being said ought to concern Christians everywhere. You know, sometimes we just need to stop and listen and pray for one another and love one another in obedience to Jesus. 
Amen? You okay so far? No cold sweats? Today we're not going to take you into a lot of deep expositions of movements like critical race theory or on the other end of things, the alt-right movement. Um, there's lots we could be saying about those things, but maybe we'll get a chance to talk about those things in another setting. The only place I really think I can take you today is where my heart is, the place where God's been really speaking to me. Uh, I want to look at what the scriptures say and how I believe the Holy Spirit has been speaking to me and how he wants me to share with you. Like you, in the last year, I have watched the protests, massive protests, which some of which have turned violent, with violence by some African-American people and some violence by some white people on the other side, and people on both sides of the political spectrum have been involved. And as I've watched, my heart has been burdened. Conversation is not happening. Dialogue isn't taking place. Seems to me people are digging their heels in and standing at opposite sides of the road and shouting at each other. And that's not really taking us anywhere. I've been burdened for my African-American brothers and sisters and all of our brothers and sisters of color and nationality. In many cases, African-American people seem to be crying out for someone to just stop and listen and at least try to understand what they've been saying. And my heart is burdened for my white brothers and sisters, many of whom are confused about what's going on, and some of whom do not seem to have very much empathy or even a willingness to understand. And in between those two sides, there is a lot of fear and a lot of confusion. Now, I'm not here today to answer all of the possible questions that might be asked or address all of the issues that have to do with race, but I do hope that this will begin some positive dialogue on some of these issues, uh, sort of a start of a conversation. Now, I'm calling my sermon this morning when race wasn't an issue. When race wasn't an issue, what an odd title. Well, as a Christ follower, I believe that there are two perspectives on any issue that we look at, that there's God's perspective and the world's perspective. And sometimes the two things agree, like on things like feeding the poor. You know, when it comes to an issue like that, I don't really care who's feeding the poor as long as somebody is feeding the poor. But there are other issues when the world's view goes against God's view, and we must, as believers, reject the world's view and choose God's view every time. Amen? I'll tell you up front that I believe this. I believe that this is God's perspective, that race is not an issue eternally. That last word is pretty important. Not that he doesn't care about the pain that some people experience because of race here on earth. And I really believe that God cares very much about the pain that people are going through because of this issue. But it seems to me that race or ethnicity does not come into his intention for humanity, past, future, and somehow present. God loves us all. He wants to include us all in his plan of redemption. And, and I want to look at some helpful scripture today that, that might help us look at 
at racial issues, particularly in humanity. And I want to do it in three ways. I want to do it by looking at the past first, then looking at the future next, and then talking about that time in between, which is where we are right now, this time in between. We're going to bookend the discussion with Genesis 1 and Revelation 9, so you might want to open your Bible this morning to Genesis chapter 1. It begins in the beginning with the creation story, and the part I want to focus on starts in verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image our own likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what do you notice about this creation? There's no racial separation here at all, is there? We, the humans, were made in the image of God. Only humans, all humans, and the only differences in human creation were male and female. Now, we are talking here about God's intention in his creation for humanity. Uh, you know, I recently read that it is genetically impossible to go from white skin to very dark skin in terms of genetics with lesser pigment. Uh, it is possible, though, to go from dark skin to lighter skin with lesser pigment as we adapt to geography and to climate and a lot of other issues, a lot of other things. Scientists believe that all humanity started on the African continent. They call it the cradle of civilization. The creation story in the Bible doesn't say where they were created. It just says that after they were created, God took them and put them in a garden east of a place called Eden, and, and that's where they lived. It was a kind of a preserve for man, if you will, a beautiful place where uh, they had everything they needed. And many scholars uh, think that that was somewhere in the Middle East, and uh, maybe the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, maybe in Iran. But regardless of the exact location of that, Part of the world we were birthed into as humanity tells us one thing for certain. Anybody want to guess what that is? The overwhelming probability is that first man and first woman were not white. I'll let that sink in for a moment. <laughs> that might be a new thought for some of you. And Jesus was not a European-American. He was not white-skinned either. He was Jewish from Judea, and uh, that's on the Asian continent. In fact, you'll notice that this it's kind of a beautiful thing in God's plan where the birth of civilization happens and where the redemption story takes place is it takes place at the, the confluence of three continents. You know, you have right at the, the, the western edge, you have the, the Judea and you have Israel and you have you know, somewhere in here where we were birthed. And Africa's right there, so it could be on that side of the, the Great Lake. It could be on this side. And to the north, there's the European continent just starting. And, and it's all there. And it's in the perfect place for humanity to spread out over the earth. And it's in the perfect place later on for us to spread out over the earth with the gospel message. 
God is wonderful. There's so many amazing things that he's done. When we were created, we were created as one race, the one we call the human race. There's no sign of racial or even ethnic division at that point. We don't even see language division until we get to the story of the Tower of Babel, which is a little later on. And you don't find any division in Genesis 2, the second creation story, either. That means that people of every skin color on the planet were birthed with the same parents as our ancestors. Now, we often point back to Genesis and we say this. We say, Genesis is, is the first impression. This is how God meant for us to live before the fall, right? We do that all the time. This was in the beginning. Well, in the beginning, race was not an issue. Now, let me skip to the end of the book. Uh, we've gone from God's intention. Let me take you to God's plan. Let's move from the beginning to the end. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. And it says, after this, this is John speaking, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Well, remember from our Revelation study, this is John is speaking what God has told him to speak. John got a vision from God, and, and he was told to write it down and to send it to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and of course from there it spread out, and eventually it came down through history to us. God preserved it. And here in this view of the future, we're given a glimpse into the actual throne room of God. That only happens a few places in the Bible. There's, there's here, and there's back in Isaiah chapter 6, and there may be another place that doesn't immediately come to mind. But, you know, we don't get a lot of chances to see what's going on in there. And we see the throne room of God at the end of our time, at the end of our human history. And what we see is a massive crowd of people, too many to count, it says. And those people are from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Now, notice this. They're all wearing white robes. We've said before in our series when, on Revelation that that white robe, it represents a changed heart. It represents a, a purification. It represents believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior and, and having been made righteous by him. And so we have this massive crowd made up of all these different languages and nationalities and colors and everything else, and they're standing before the throne of God in white, and they're worshiping God. And they're speaking and sharing in one voice together. It's a beautiful thing. Maybe you don't know this, but the white supremacist movement uses this verse as a place to say, see, the Bible says that we should be all segregated and separated from one another. You wonder how they got that out of this. Well, they say, well, you know, they... Um, in heaven, in God's throne room, all the people are in groups, 
Some are divided by nations. Some are divided by tribes over there. Some people are in groups by themselves over here on this side. And, and some are divided by the languages that they speak. Let me say this as gently as I can. That is the stupidest interpretation I have ever heard. <laughs> and that's the gentlest I could say it. It does not say anything of the sort in this text. That's not what this text says. That's not what this is all about. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. It says the multitude was made up of all of these groups. All these groups that were formerly separated from one another are now at the end of time together as one. And it says they were all holding palm branches. Remember, palm branches symbolize that welcome of the king. They symbolize that the worship. You think of Jesus on the, the day where he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and people weighing the branches and saying, Hosanna to the king. Well, in reality, we've now moved into that stage where Jesus is sitting on the throne and it's the rule of Jesus and the rule forever. This is God's intention for us at the end of known time. As the earth is cleansed and recreated, as the new earth and the new heavens somehow join together and come down, God's kingdom come that we've been praying for ever since we've been praying the Lord's Prayer. Do you see any racial division in this anywhere? Do you think that in this case and at the end of time, in this prophecy that we're getting to look into the future, do you think that for God, race is an issue here? Okay. In fact, what it is, it's a fulfillment of Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. It's also the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, even as you cross into the second part of the book of Acts, or the, or the first part of the book of Acts, the second chapter... When Pentecost happens, you had all these different people from all these different nations gathered in one spot for this giant festival. It says, listen to the list, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And all these people witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they all heard the gospel proclaimed by Peter in their own language by a miracle of God. And 3,000 people believed in Jesus and became Christ's followers that day. 3,000. Many different colors represented there. If you know anything about those countries... Many different languages. 
many different ethnic groups, even three different continents are represented by that group there. Almost like the cradle of civilization idea again. And we have this incredible event where God reveals himself in a pretty dramatic way. You know, as long as there was a gospel to tell, it was God's plan to tell it, right? And it was always God's plan from the moment of creation, particularly from the moment of the fall, to bring us to this place in heaven where we're restored, where we're redeemed, and the redeemed are from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. So, in the beginning, in the beginning, I'm going your right to my left because I'm doing Hebrew. In the beginning, we have God's intention in creation. And in the end, we have God's plan for redemption and salvation. And in either place, there is no place for separation by race. Amen? All right. Which brings, uh, brings us to another place. That's the place of in between. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is where we're at. This is the intention. This is the plan. And here's us <laughs> right here in the middle. We live in a space between creation and final redemption. We live in a world that's divided by many, many things. We are far outside of God's intention. We are living in ways not according to God's plan. And we live in a country that we wish was not divided. Notice in the Pledge of Allegiance, some great words here. We pledge allegiance to the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Are we one nation under God? Are we truly indivisible? Are we undivided? Do you know the meaning of the word obtuse? one of Bonnie's favorite words. My wife says, you're being obtuse. And sometimes I think she's right. The, the dictionary defines it as annoying, intensive, or slow to understand. And it comes from a Latin word meaning dull or blunt, like a knife that's not sharp enough to cut anything, a little bit off. As my friend John used to say to me, you're not quite right, are you? <laughs> and we use that word, when we use that word, we usually mean that somebody is being insensitive or slow to understand on purpose. They're being deliberate about it. It's when we refuse to understand something. Wives, you know all how this works with your husbands. You know, you tell them, you need, you need them to understand this thing. And I don't know what you mean. That's being obtuse. Issues of race are very difficult for us to face. And they're often difficult to understand. 
and there's often a great deal of anger attached to them. And I don't know about you, but you know, when somebody gets in my face and they're kind of angry, I kind of shut them down, especially if I feel like their anger is pointed at me. That makes it hard for me to hear. And I tend to back away from things that are uncomfortable to discuss anyway. It's in my nature to be a peacemaker. So when a black person brings up the problem, the idea of institutional racism, boy, do I move away from that one. It's like, it's scary. And especially when they begin to bring up specific examples of things that have happened and things that continue to happen, I don't want to believe those things about my country. I love my country. I love this place where I have my home. And so I become defensive, and I also become obtuse. I deliberately back away from them. I don't want to believe them. I don't want to acknowledge that such things exist, so I choose not to believe. Because if I believe, I have to do something about it. And I believe that as Christians, we are often being obtuse when it comes to race. Now, at the other end of that are people who just say, well, all we got to do is get together in a circle and hold hands and sing kumbaya, and everything will be okay. And we know that's not true. I can't tell you how many times in the last year I've heard from people, I don't believe in systemic racism. I don't believe, I've actually heard those words, I do not believe in systemic racism. Now, the important part of that sentence is systemic. It implies that there are some elements of racism that are embedded in the way our system works, in the way we do things, in spite of the laws that prohibit them. And I read of a, a fascinating conversation that took place sometime in the early to mid-70s. It was a group of civil rights leaders who had been with Martin Luther King, and they had been through the, all the difficult marches and the terrible things that happened at some of those places, and they finally had seen the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And they're together talking, I think they were mostly lawyers, and they were talking together, and they were saying, you know, we did all this work, and we changed this law, so how come it doesn't feel like things are all that different? It was a very important question. And it began kind of a new era of seeking racial reconciliation. Well, let's think about that for a moment. Um, woman I read named Kelsey Shub. She's an assistant professor at the University of California. She did a study. Now, get this. How many, how many people in her study? You know, we often criticize studies for the small sample they take. Her study included 20 million traffic stops in America. That's 14 years' worth of traffic stops. And here's what she found. She found that black people were 63% more likely to be stopped than a white person. And when you account for the actual amount of time spent on the road, which is far more white than black, when you account for the actual time spent on the road, it, it comes out to more like 95% of those stops are black rather than white. That's a fact. It's based on that huge sample. 
And she also found out that black people are 115 times more likely than whites to be searched in a traffic stop in spite of the fact, and you ready for this? This is a big one. In spite of the fact that contraband was far more likely to be found in searches of white drivers. 115 times more likely. Now, this gets personal when you start talking to people about it, and I, I've had this conversation. I've heard so many different stories from people I know, people getting pulled over for no particular reason. And, and I've heard them talk about how it's a terrifying experience, that they've learned how to fully cooperate, to keep their hands visible at all times, to say yes, sir, no, sir, and to do exactly what they're told. They often call it stopped for driving while black. It's happened so often that there's a term for it. In fact, it happens so often that fathers have what they call the talk with their children. Now, we're not talking about the birds and bees here. We're talking about what to do when a policeman pulls you over in a traffic stop. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. What a sad state of experience when you are just pulled over at random by the police and have your car searched because of the color of your skin. Other studies have shown that black children are far more likely to be expelled from school as white children for the same problems and offenses. Studies at Harvard that I read showed that callbacks for job interviews were only 10% for people with black-sounding names, 11.9% for Asians, but when people submitted the same resume to the same company but whitened up their name, made it sound more white, Blacks got a call back at 25% of the time, and Asians at 21. For blacks, that's more than double the response, just for having a white-sounding name. Over a 16-year period, from 2000 to 2016, incarceration rates were far higher for black people in America than white. And, and I've heard people say this, well, that's because black people do more crime than white people do. Statistically, black people and white people commit almost an identical rate of crime in this country. Yet, studies have shown that in 2016, black offenders were five times as likely to be incarcerated for a drug crime as a white offender for exactly the same crime. Five times. In fact, it happens so often that they have a saying for that too. Same crime, more time. That's sad. Well, I don't want to bombard you with facts, but I want you to be able to see some facts that maybe will make you look to see some other facts. I want you to see that we have a problem. And we can't be obtuse about it. 
We can't pretend that it's not happening because we're uncomfortable with it. And this is, this is just scratching the surface of the things that I've found in, in a long time of study. We can't ignore these things. It's an issue of justice. And we're not talking about social justice. We're talking about God's justice. That's a topic for a whole different sermon, and we'll get there. But we Christians cannot stick our heads in the sand and pretend there isn't a problem. So, you remember in the beginning? Remember how things were going to be in the end? What was God's intention in creation? What was God's plan for the end? Will race be an issue? No. Not at all. But it's an issue now. So what can we do about it? Let me give you a couple of practical things that you can do about it. You can listen. I have a lot of resources. I, I printed some up. I'll have some available when you're going out today. They're going to be out on the lobby table, and I also put it up on Facebook this morning, so you can see this list of resources. But, but there are a lot of things that can help you to understand what's being said and why. To help you on what the real situation is, opposed to what we might hear in the media, which is often very distorted. And uh, you might be surprised at what you learn by looking at just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. You can pray. You can pray for others. You can let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. See, when we pray, we often pray this way. <laughs> We don't always pray this way. So we need to do both in this situation. We need to pray for others, and we need to pray for ourselves and to let God speak to our hearts on this subject, which leads me to the next one, which is you can change. If God is speaking to your heart about making a change in your life, if God is convicting you about some of these things, then be open to change. See how God changes you. And if you feel God's prompting through his Holy Spirit, start now. Don't wait. The last thing is you can talk about it. Um, Ibram X. Kendi, who I've been listening to and I read his book, uh, one of his books this week, uh, he has the podcast called Be, Anti, Be Anti-Racist. He says over and over and over through that book, he says, talk it, walk it. Talk it, walk it. Talking together is one of the best ways we can learn from one another. And after you've learned something, allow it to influence what you do in everyday life. Talk it and walk it. Just talking isn't enough. We have to move to the walking stage. That's true of our faith, isn't it? That's true of every issue that we bring God's word to bear on. You know, we are not the white rescuers. We are not the white knights. We are not the ones who come with the white savior complex, they call it. We don't believe that we have all the answers to these questions, or we shouldn't believe that, to all these problems in the African-American community. We aren't here to solve everything, maybe even anything. But we can partner the best that we can with those efforts 
that are trying to equalize the balance. We want to love the whole world and not just some. And, you know, we're not colorblind. You know, we often say things like, well, I'm not a racist. And then we say, we back that up with saying, I don't see color. Well, that's okay. But it might be a problem if you don't see and recognize the other person as an individual and recognize their cultural perspective and recognize that they may have a different story than you, but that doesn't make them lesser than you. A lot more we could say, but we're going to stop there. Would you pray with me as we finish up? Lord Jesus, there is so much to this subject that we haven't even started hardly. Please teach us in your way to walk by the Spirit, to be compassionate, and to care enough to learn. Lord, we pray that you will bring unity in your church and in the people you have created, all of your people. Lord, I repent of my sin, especially my sin of ignoring this issue for so long. Make my heart your heart. Lord, we look forward to the promised day when we really will all stand together in one spirit to worship the Lamb. May that day come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.